0: Welcome back to another edition of the Beervana Podcast, Jeff.
1: Hello, Patrick. How you doing? I'm doing pretty well. We seem to have made it through the horrors of this very hot summer, and now it's a wonderfully pleasant Portland day out there.
0: Yeah, after yet another unbelievable heat wave in Portland, we are back to what we would describe probably
1: as normal summertime. Yeah, it looks, here. it looks like... A blasted moonscape out there. The, the
0: <laughs> yeah. grass is pretty brown. Everything is very dry. So uh, welcome to the Beervana podcast. With me of course is Jeff Allworth who is the author of the Beervana blog. He is also author of the Beer Bible from Workman Publishing that's out on Tuesday.
1: Oh so exciting.
0: So excited. If you're local uh, make your way to uh, Belmont Station for the, uh, the big party.
1: 5, five to 7 p.m. and I'll probably say something to the crowd at uh the crowd of four or five people who show up at uh uh, around six so cool please please come by if you have any interest in that
0: and your world tour uh uh, follows shortly thereafter so so look for jeff in your town soon that's right (laughs) uh Uh, you can pre-order those books at pals.com if you do you might even get a signed copy still
1: oh yeah absolutely actually the signed copies will last until the end of august because i'm doing a a, uh, an event with Powell's, and it, that's at the end of August. So, yeah. If you miss this event, you're still good for a signed copy.
0: Uh, yeah, but don't wait. Buy now. Buy now.
1: Y- oh, you're you're good at this. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My yeah. publicist appreciates that. Uh,
0: and then Cider Made Simple from uh, Chronicle Publishing is coming out this fall as well.
1: That's true. And you are Patrick Emerson. I am. i uh, The uh, noted uh, economics professor at Oregon State University, also a fellow at... Uh, a long name in uh University of Sao Paulo. <laughs> That's right. C-Micro. 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 Uh, and But you're here now, and we're here now, and we're going to be talking about what? Uh,
0: so we're going to get back to basics after a couple of special pods about the Oregon Brewers Festival. We're now going to talk uh, this week about uh, Flanders Red. Uh, this is a special kind of red-brown beer made in the Flanders region of Belgium. Uh, they are some of the most accomplished beers in the world, Right.
1: Yes, uh, they are. They're. they're uh, w- Michael Jackson called them the Burgundies of Belgium, and they were kind of a uh, not-well-concealed secret that he loved those the best. And mm-hmm. I, I have to say um, they're definitely in my top group of, of favorite beers, too. They're mm-hmm. really, really hard to make. Um, they are very elegant and uh, complex and lovely beers. And
0: despite their quality, their quantity is diminishing.
1: Yeah, it is. There's not so many of these left. Uh, people will know a, f- a few of the big names like uh, Rodenbach and Verhage, uh, which makes uh, the Duchess of... Maybe you know how to say this. Duchess de Bourgogne something? Yeah, I don't know how you... I've never, I've never really known how to say
0: it. I think. Yeah.
1: Uh, the Duchess of Burgundy, but it's in the Dutch, uh, of course, because we're talking about the beers of Flanders, which is in the west part of uh, Belgium. Mm-hmm. And these beers date back to uh, a long time. Uh, Flanders is known for its dark beers. And back in uh, uh, long-ago times, we're talking 200 years and and earlier, Mm -hmm. the way they got them to be dark was they boiled them for a really, really long period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a a famous uh, scientist named uh, Georges Lacomber who... When, and did a tour around Belgium in the 1850s and looked at how beers were made, and he found crazy long boil times in Flanders. People would be boiling these beers like 15, 20 hours.
0: Is that, was that by tradition, or was there a purpose?
1: Uh, it, it was totally by tradition, and the people expected the brown was considered, the brown quality that comes from concentrating the wort and, mm-hmm. and uh, getting those Maillard reactions was considered the, the mark of quality. And If a beer wasn't brown, the people of Flanders were suspicious about Ah. Beer, so they wanted to see that it was brown in order to know it was a good quality beer interesting um, Rodenbach came on Rodenbach's sort of the flagship uh, brewery in this style, um, the most famous maker and the and the biggest producer uh, and they came along they 're not a super ancient brewery um, in the early eighteen uh, hundreds the brewery was founded, mm-hmm. and they were just making traditional flanders uh, beers not not uh, that aged like we know them now to be and it wasn't uh until the 1870s that the third generation uh rodenbach named eugene rodenbach went to london to learn how to make porter and mm-hmm. then he saw them vat aging the porter there in london and he brought that idea back and 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 those old porters in london were um vinus and the Brettanomyces in the in the wood uh in those beers got into the the porter and made it Mm -hmm. very austere sophisticated kind of beer that was famous, uh, the world over. So Eugene came back from, uh, England and suggested that Rödenbach start putting together a barrel program and they dug out some cellars, which have grown over time and put these gigantic oaken fooders, they call, call them fooders there, um, to age the beer. So
0: open oak fermenters.
1: They're not open. Uh. They're, um, they're it, you might have seen some photos of these they're typical in wineries um mm-hmm. they're the, they're they're like as big as a Volkswagen van turned mm-hmm. on its on its front so they're uh, tall and kind of slender mm-hmm. um so that's sort of the the background of Rodenbach. and then there are other kind of famous ones in so the region too so that
0: that uh that technique the 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 barrel aging the beer um caught on clearly in that region and they became sort of the standard
1: yeah, I did catch on. So one thing that Lacombré found was that in each little village they made beer a different way, mm-hmm. and so that so, so there's a kind of a collection of breweries that were making beer in sort of the same way, but sort of different ways. Mm. And a lot of people know uh, there's another brewery called Leafman's, um, which was which was made um, a little bit further east of uh, Rodenbach and Rousselare. and that. Process was slightly different, and, and Michael Jackson called those oud bruins, mm-hmm. um, and he called these Flemish Reds. There's actually, I think, not a lot of uh, justification for distinguishing them because they're each each one of these breweries made the beers slightly differently. Right. But um, the key, the key to the to the style that we know now, uh, which is distinguished from just other brown ales, you know, like West Fletcher and people uh, may be familiar with the brewery the monks uh, at West Veladerin who make a, a powerful brown beer. That's mm-hmm. another Flanders-style brown beer, but it's not barrel-aged. It's not acidic. It's just heavy and and, uh, and alcoholic. The ones that we're talking about are the ones that go through barrel aging and in the barrel aging process become acidified.
0: Mm-hmm. And so what are the sort of key flavor characteristics? What do these beers taste like? How do you distinguish a Flanders red?
1: Well, they. I think there's a... A basket of flavors that you look for. Mm -hmm. Um, The the and we should we'll we'll taste them and then we'll walk through these. Mm -hmm. But um, they have a balanced acidity and uh, one of the things that happens in the in the barrel aging process. I think this is a little understood fact. um, Is the Brettanomyces does not create a, a classic brett flavor that we get out of these mm-hmm. but what does happen is this in the slow aging process as the uh, yeast interacts with the oxygen through the staves of the wood is it creates a lot of esters so in um, in these beers you'll find different f- different really sharp fruity flavors or not sharp but noticed, no, really particular fruity flavors right. that complement the acidity very nicely mm-hmm. and so it has this round complex flavor
0: excellent yeah I can't wait to time. Uh yeah so we'll, we'll we'll get to the the economics of it but it uh, uh later in the podcast but there are only a few Flanders reds that uh you can find today in US stores uh certainly so are there many breweries left
1: no there's not uh and this a a slow expensive way to make beer um and a lot of times with these old breweries uh they have old equipment and when it comes time to modernize you're looking at the prospect of making a very expensive beer that you can't sell very much of because it's got to be barrel-aged and upg- upgrading your brewery so it's expensive. And, and over time, we've just seen brewery after brewery disappear. And there's a little bit of hope. Um, people will know the, the dull breweries, the mad brewers. Uh, in Essen, they make a uh, dark beer called uh, beer that is a dark uh, beer, and, and they've begun to work with souring. Mm. Um, and Distruz makes a... A beer called Ardmonic, and, and they also barrel age that. They're small production, and so a little bit of hope. But basically, this is a style that is in real jeopardy. And if and if Rodenbach is doesn't make it, um, the style might might fail because it's really the, the the king, and it's the beer that you know you, we just went to the groceries. You can find these things in the grocery store here. Yeah. So it's a it's a relatively large production.
0: Yeah, so we'll get back to the the economic challenges of of brewing the beer, but one of the things that uh is true that it's a fairly rare style to see among US craft brewers. Um, yeah. As as uh probably explained by the the challenges in in making it, but we actually have a local uh brewery that that makes it that that was a bit of the the catalyst for creating this uh this week's pod. Uh Freem makes it. A, a Flanders red um, that we 'll try along with the with the the the, the rodenbach um, why is it why why aren 't more American brewers
1: it 's hard to make, and I think most American brewers misunderstand how it 's made, mm-hmm. and uh, that maybe is a good opportunity for us to uh, discuss the brewing the production methods and and uh, how they do it and We have some nice tape here from uh, the master brewer at Rodenbach, whose name is Rudy, and I'm gonna I'm gonna spell and not pronounce his last name. It's G H E Q U I R E. And when I met him, I asked him to pronounce his name, and he sounded like he was clearing his throat. And <laughs> I was con- and I said, oh, "Could you repeat that?" And he cleared his throat again, and I realized there was no way I was pronouncing his his weird Flemish last name. So we affectionately call him Rudy Unpronounceable.
0: Yes, yeah, so we'll, 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 we'll refer to him as Rudy Unpronounceable for now. So, uh, yeah, let's listen to, to Rudy Unpronounceable's uh, description.
1: So l- the, first, l- l- the first clip we'll listen to here is kay. he'll do an overview, a quick overview of the, the whole process, and then we'll talk briefly about, point out a, a couple of key points, and then we will uh, revisit Rudy for a little bit more detail. So, so huh. let's, uh, let's listen to him talk about the overview first. Okay, sounds good.
2: We make port in the brew house, we do the fermentation in the cylinder conical vessels, then we go with, with the, our beer on horizontal tanks here after this wall, And then we go after five, six weeks with beer, with the uh, nearly bright beer but with as less yeast cells as possible in the beer into vats. And then we store the vat, the beer during two years on a wooden vat and after two years we blended several vats together to okay. make a mother blend. And then we took the motherland and blended it together with young beer. And that gives you Rodenbach.
1: Okay, so uh, that was a, he he sprinted through that very quickly. uh, And there's a couple of things that we should point out uh, just as a uh, kind of bookmark what he's talking about. Uh, And I think the, the real big key here is he talked about, they start out by making a beer, and then they put the beer the finished beer, in the fooders. Uh, rather than, as uh, mar- many Americans who make wild ales, making wort and then pitching the wild yeast or putting it in the barrel uh-huh. as wort, he makes the beer first, and then he puts that in the barrels. And um, there, there are a lot of brewers who, uh, home brewers and professional brewers, who knew the, know about the y yeast, Russelare yeast, uh, which, is, which is Rodenbach's, and we've, encountered many times people making Flanders red beers where they pitch that directly into wort and it produces some really gnarly beer. It's like uh, really acetic and a lot of uh, nail polish and it's, <laughs> it can be pretty nasty. And, and the key and uh, what I was fascinated to learn when I visited was uh, you want to start with, with beer and acidify the beer.
0: So he, so he makes a beer and it ferments out using the yeast uh, that he pitches to begin with. But the, the wild yeast is so hungry for sugar, it'll feast on the remaining sugar in the beer. Exactly. Ah, I see. Yeah. Okay. In
1: fact, let's use that as a segue. He's going to go, uh, we're going to have another clip here where Rudy goes into more detail about this process and um, the, this, he calls it mixed fermentation. So we'll listen to him talk about
2: that. Okay. In our fall, we work with a yeast culture with eight different yeast strains right. and also a little bit of lactic bacteria. Okay. And during the first week, we have an alcoholic fermentation from the, the yeast cells. And after one week, it were the, the, the lactic bacteria took it over during the lagering time. Mm. And then we, and, and during the lagering time, we reduced the yeast cells in the beer by precipitation. So they, they, fell, they fell down. And then we go with a nearly bright young beer on wood. So the, the big difference between spontaneous fermentation and mixed fermentation is that with spontaneous fermentation, you go with worked on wood, on wooden fats. Right. And we go with young beer on okay. wood. We have the beer has an alcoholic protection. Right. So this is less risky. So this beer is made to have an acid beer. And, and after two years, you have a very technical beer, a very acid beer. And then you blend that acid beer together with young beer to reduce the pH in your blend. That is the philosophy of this brewery. No. It's conservation by acidity.
1: You don't. You just have lactobacillus. You don't have pediococcus. You don't have Brettanomyces. Just
2: we don't look for Brettanomyces. Okay. We don't look for pediococcus. You have it in Wort infection. Right. Mm-hmm. This is typical for the lambic beers. Okay. We don't like um, Brettanomyces flavors.
1: So there we heard uh, Rudy describing the overview of the way that the the process works, and I think. We can add a little bit of texture here um, the because he, he doesn 't describe so much what happens in the two years that the beer is sitting acidifying in, the, in those right. those, f- those fooders um, that's when it w- when I did this tour with with Rudy, it was uh, a really amusing process. We started out in the brewery we, you know you always start out in the brewery and usually uh, the brewery you've, you've done enough tours, you know that this is where most of the action is. Yeah. Uh, you get
0: brewmasters are very proud of their breweries and the efficiency they can get out of it, and yeah.
1: Yeah, and then when you get to the fermentation and cellar, there it's like pretty fast. Yeah, like, I yeah, hear the tanks. Yeah, okay, here's tanks. <laughs> <laughs> it was exactly the opposite at Rödenbach. We we we, we waltz through this beautiful new brew house that they installed, um, and he mentioned very briefly what was happening He's like this beer you know it's we just we do this thing we do this thing it's oh, we don't use very many hops um they actually i think people won't be surprised they use uh corn in the grist so there's a little bit of corn Oh, interesting. yeah they have a cereal masher so it goes over to the cereal masher and it comes back this is quite typical for for belgian beers but mm. i but probably would surprise some folks but basically we were literally uh as we were getting near the end of the tour he was walking so fast as we were headed towards the cellars, we were kind of jogging out of there. We, got, we went through the entire brewery tour in maybe the, uh, 10 minutes. That's, that's fascinating.
0: That's the factory process. That's the boring stuff. Exactly. Here's all the, the art is coming. Yeah, the,
1: the beer, Rodenbach is not made in the brewery. It's made in the cellars. Yeah. So then we got in the cellars and we spent probably an hour uh, going from w- these giant fooders to giant fooders and tasting them. Uh-huh. And the, you know the cool thing is each one, because it's got resident uh, microbiology, microorganisms in there. Right. Uh, each one becomes its own ecosystem. So each barrel tastes different. So uh-huh. you taste one and it's uh, more acidic, and you taste one. We tasted one.
0: So Rudy Unpronounceable probably gets to know gets to know the barrels very well and what kind of flavor he's going to get out of each one.
1: Yeah, and he has an insane palate, as, yeah. as so many brewers do. We we tasted one one batch, and it was and these some of these are really. Acidic. I mean, like milk, milk <laughs> tongue acidity, and we tasted one, and he said, "Oh, there's some Brett in that. We'll have to blend that out." And there, there was absolutely no Brett that I could taste. But mm-hmm. he was, he had such a subtle sense. Mm-hmm. So when he says there's no Brettanomyces and Pediococcus, uh, I think what he means to say is they're really trying to limit the character from those. But right. they got a lot of funky bugs in there, yeah. so they um, don't want
0: those flavor characteristics appearing in the final beer.
1: Right. Yeah. So the last thing then is the the big th- the the reason you put something on wood is because your uh, wood is uh, an aerobic environment. Oxygen can get through mm-hmm. the wood, but what I learned at, at uh, Rodenbach, which I'd never heard before, uh, and which is critical to Rodenbach, is that micro or that uh, uh, that biochemistry that mm-hmm. happens with the oxygen and the yeast yep. will happen at different rates depending on how much oxygen is getting in. Right. And the way that you determine how much oxygen is getting in is by the size of the fooder. Uh. And this was something that uh, Rodenbach didn't actually appreciate when they first started building these because they were building them in all different sizes, and they kept making them bigger and bigger because, you know, why wouldn't you make them bigger and bigger? Right, right. So we have a clip here where Rudy describes uh, the fooder sizes and what, what's going on with uh, inside the fooders.
2: And then in fact, of so 180 hectoliters, then 320 hectoliters, and during the... the the two world wars they built the biggest fat they could find on the market it were uh, vats of 650 hectoliters, and they built them in um, uh, 1936 and after a few years they discovered that um, uh, the beer maturation was not going so fast comparing with fats of 180 hectolitres hmm. and the, uh, the, the, uh, the reason is very simple because the maturation speed depends on the average of inner side surface and content.
0: Ah, so that's fascinating. So it's the, it's the surface area relative to the size of the volume of liquid inside. Exactly. So yeah. it's actually the smaller vats that increase the oxygenation.
1: That's right. And, and so this is um, a factor if you're using wine barrels, which are a great deal s- smaller than these. Right. Um, and, and also wine barrels have much... Thinner staves, like mm-hmm. I think uh, Ruby at one point said two centimeters, whereas the staves in, in his are eight centimeters. Right. So you want to get this balance. And um, uh, they found, Rodenbach has found that the 180 hecto uh, fooders give them the maturation that they need in about the right amount of time. And um, that biochemistry produces the, the sweetest, nicest flavors.
0: But they still have other sizes there, so they still use the other sizes.
1: That's exactly right. So then they, they that's where blending comes in. Right. And that's what you, when you talked in the, the previous quote about the creating the mother blend, they go around and they use their, it's it's Rudy and a couple other guys from the brewery, and they taste it, and they build this blend. And each, each year when they release a beer, they go to these two-year-old tanks and pull out all the different, uh, to create the mother blend, um, from all the different uh, fooders that taste like Rodenbach. So they're trying to match Rodenbach's consistent flavor every, every year with all these different uh, fooders. And, right. the, you know. and
0: that blend they create is the same blend they put in both the regular Rodenbach and the Grand Cru, but That's just at different proportions? Exactly,
1: yeah. Okay. They create the mother blend, and then they, they blend. That goes in a big vat, and then they use that to blend out the rest.
0: Right, right. Well, all this uh, talk is making me thirsty. Yeah. I we, have a, we have a Rodenbach Grand Cru in front of us. Uh so I suggest we uh we take a taste. Let's do it. Okay. So this is a, a corked bottle, as you might expect. And so I will do my very best to not destroy the
1: studio. <laughs> yeah, I got a lot of important technical equipment here in the studio. Yeah. The studio is very fragile,
0: however, because it's has has been destroyed once before by my Sun's lemonade. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I know of what I speak. Yeah. Okay, so I was able to cork it efficiently.
1: You did that very nicely, and it was. Uh...
0: And I, I want to mention, by the way, that uh, we are pouring the Rodenbach Grand Cru into a Rodenbach Grand Cru glass. It's true. Well done. Thank you. Uh...
1: <laughs> I have a few. I have a few of my favorites. Uh, I have a an Orval glass and a Rodenbach glass. So. Mm. Wow.
0: So let's describe the color.
1: Yeah, you should describe So I'm a colorblind and, uh, yeah, describe that color. It is,
0: it is quite dark. It is certainly red, um, when you shine the light through it. Uh, so it's a brownish red. Um, it's, uh, dark. I want to, I want to sort of, uh, try to describe the, the it's very clear, um, but I want to try to describe the darkness. It takes it takes me holding it up to a light bulb to really have the light shine through, uh, and and see the red. But it's quite a beautiful beer. I mean, they are not a... kidding when they talk about Flanders when I talk about red. This is is it's it's just a uh, a delightful reddish hue that you get from it. And the the head is um, uh, diminishing rapidly. It's not too effervescent from the bottle, but it pours a a fairly sizable head.
1: So one one thing that I I think is super characteristic of these beers is a balsamic note, mm-hmm. at least the Belgian ones. Yeah. And um the Verhag's uh, Duchess also has this. Uh and there's a couple others and they have them in greater or lesser degrees. But I, I think I don't know what the biochemistry is that produces that, but it's really characteristic.
0: Yeah. And I should mention that I'm a neophyte here. I, I believe I've had Rodenbach in the past, but in the very distant past and I so I'm coming at this from a pretty uh fresh perspective. And yeah, now that you've mentioned the, the balsamic it's it's incredibly present. Yeah. Is that true at the brewery as well? Uh or is this something that has to do with the the time it spends in a bottle? No,
1: nope, it's it it, it, it it it's this way out of the the barrel. Mm-hmm. And it it's quite an acidic beer. It's not um uh painful, but I'll, but from the barrels it can be, and you can buy, uh, they sometimes will sell a, a product called Vintage, which is straight from the barrel, no mm. no blending at all, uh-huh. and it'll even tell you which, which fooder it came from. I actually enjoy the, uh, the blended version because the sweetness that you get from that green beer um, works very nicely with not only the acidity, but the esters that are produced in the production of the acidification. Um, and those esters, the acidity and the sweetness all kind of come together in a really nice. Uh,
0: yeah, that's my that's my first impression. I mean, this is this is a phenomenal beer. I mean, this is yes amazing, it, and it's exactly for that reason. It's this amazing melange of acidic and sweet and estery goodness. It's an eight percent beer, by the way, but doesn't feel like it.
1: I think that's probably one of the reasons the head doesn't last so long. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a pretty It's a pretty robust beer. And the the regular Rodenbach is not this strong. Uh Uh, I think it's like 6% or something. This is, it is a Grand Cru. It makes sense that.
0: And so the Grand Cru is how much aged versus new?
1: Excuse me, I was enjoying a little Rodenbach there. It is 67% aged beer, 33% uh, green beer.
0: And in the regular Rodenbach? 25%
1: Twenty-five percent aged, seventy-five percent. No, oh. yeah, twenty-five percent aged, seventy-five percent green. So
0: vastly different.
1: Vastly different. Ah,
0: okay. So and the so the, the the regular Rodenbach is probably quite sweet. Relative. It is.
1: It is quite sweet, and um, I think a lot of people. It, the regular Rodenbach used to have a higher proportion, and uh, many people. And we can talk about this later when we're talking about the business of this ah. whole thing. Uh, have criticized Rodenbach for for dropping that percentage so much, and they think it's a more insipid beer, and it's it surely is, but. Market realities, Cloud, a crowd policing beer. Yeah, they, they. You have to. Well, well. Anyway, we'll we'll talk a little bit about that. Right. The realities of trying to sell beer. It's not just about making beer. You also have to sell it. Uh, so why don't should we crack the frame and see how Josh did it? And we have some tape from Josh too. And we can we can compare what Josh did, and we can compare the beers, and sort of see how you how you try to make a new world. Uh, Flanders red. If you're, you know, if you have the the temerity to even attempt it,
0: yeah, let's do it because we now we've heard how difficult it is and how much the process. Do you want to be the, the okay. one to do the honors on this bottle?
1: All righty, I'll do this one.
0: So we know how how difficult it is, how time consuming it is. Uh, it it's uh, kind of a risky proposition, I suppose, for a for a, a craft brewer to um, to try and attempt it. Um, so I'm really uh, curious to see how how frames is because i have not had had this beer i I've,
1: I've only had it once so we'll see oh, if it's okay. the same beer that i remember and oh, let's see if i can
0: oh very nice oh, that was a good one yes that's better than mine
1: now josh like uh i i think this is a good decision and and uh and it and it's actually a very Belgian decision. Josh didn't try to recreate Rodenbrock Rodenbach. He yeah. he used the techniques and the idea and the inspiration to create a beer that was distinctive and, and represented Freem's vision of this kind of beer. Yeah. And is, the very
0: and the very first thing you notice is that it's much less dark. Exactly. It is more amber with a tint of red. A hint of red, rather than this sort of very dark, almost sort of I don't know if we'll call it molasses. It's not that dark, but, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a brown, a reddish brown that's Rodenbrock. This is definitely an amber, sort of a amber with a a tint of red. It's, it's, it's also quite bright. It's very clear. Mm -hmm. Um, It seems slightly more effervescent. And this is a 7%, by the way, I just looked at the bottle. And, uh, um, both are quite beautiful.
1: They are really beautiful. And, and just like, uh, uh, the old Flemish drinkers. Um, beauty is an important part of this beer, and when you see the other the other beers, uh, Verhags and uh, uh, some of the other ones there, uh, Leafman's, the the idea that it should be pretty is an important part.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I believe that in, in beer. Although beauty in the eye of the beholder, I do like a nice cloudy IPA from the northwest as much as a beautiful bright.
1: Yeah, Josh Freem is really interested in uh, bright beers. He bought a f- Centrifuge. For those of you out there who are unfamiliar with the Centrifuge, it is something no little brewery I've ever seen has. It's a really expensive piece of equipment, but it makes really bright beers.
0: So the very my very first impression of the Freem relative to the Rodenbach is that the Rodenbach, as you mentioned, the balsamic note mm-hmm. is really strong. This is much more of a red wine note.
1: Yeah, I think... Uh, it has a complexity and a character that's that's a, akin to this, but it is definitely a different, a different. It, it has, I'd say, it has the balance and the uh, kind of drinkability. But it's, it, it is now now having them together, I see that they're they're a little bit different. Yeah, more, more fr- different than I expected.
0: Yeah, Freem is not a not an old brewery. No. So how long do you think they're they're able to age there? their old beer.
1: Uh. Two years, so he when when Josh started this brewery he he told me uh he, these are the kind of beers barrel aged beers are the reasons he started brewing, mm-hmm. they were what he wanted to do, and he does a lot of beers um that he's that are not barrel aged, of mm-hmm. course. But he started the barrel aging program the second he started the brewery. So mm-hmm. these these it, they're just having their third anniversary, and that's why they're already starting to have barrel aged beers appear because they, they made these right off the bat. And is he using
0: uh, wine barrels or or, or new barrels? Yeah, barrels?
1: he's only he's using wine barrels, so not the big ones. Although he does now, he did buy a little fooder, and mm-hmm. I think it's probably about half the size of the smallest uh, Rodenbach mm-hmm. one. So it's like a Volkswagen bug instead of a Volkswagen van.
0: Right. So. interesting. Yeah, because I think you're getting a lot of wine notes uh coming through from the barrel aging. Oh, by the way, the bottle I just noticed says barrel aged 18 months. There you go, 18 months. Yeah. So, it's it's quite a different beer, but it shares the characteristics of having that interplay of acidity and sweetness. Yeah, yeah that's right. The the esters in in my mind are a little bit overwhelmed in this case by the by the wine the wine notes. Um so I would say that it's not quite as it, it even though it's aged almost the same amount of time, it it, it, it seems to me a bit green more green in that sense. It
2: hmm.
0: There isn't quite the complexity of flavors. I don't mean to, to say it's bad, it's it's a really nice beer.
1: Josh Freem will not feel slagged if you say it's not as uh, not, not not as good as uh, Rodenbach. <laughs>
0: well, I just mean it's it's for one for one as you said it's um he's not trying to replicate it in a different it's a different beer That's and right. a different experience. It has these commonalities that I think I can sort of identify as a Flanders red um but uh but Rodenbach has this sort of a layer of complexity and and depth that um uh Freem is is lacking as of yet I think it'd be interesting to see when he when he when he uses his fooders or his fooder, um, uh what the what the what what notes he'll get i mean does he if he, if he's attached to those wine notes or if he's going to start developing his own barrels and
1: i think he's not especially attached to the wine notes um, uh, My guess is he's more interested in the way that the oxygen works mm-hmm. and in fact we have some tape of josh why don't we listen to him uh, describe his process a little bit we uh well the first one we have is is him describing um he's so uh one thing i will say about this beer is it's a really excellent beer it's quite nice yeah. and, and palatable mm-hmm. and it's uh w- you know it's one of those flanders reds that um it may not be identical to rodenbach but it's certainly a a wonderful presentation of a beer and when I asked him about it, I was not surprised to learn that he made it the same way that Rodenbach did, starting out uh, with a regular beer, which he then acidified. So he ferments we, out and then he acidifies, yeah. Yeah, so why don't we listen to him talk about the uh, the process he uses, uh, starting with his uh, base beer. Okay.
3: They all go through uh, the, a traditional uh, stainless fermentation. We use our house Belgian yeast, and we all build the... None of the beers are attractive, uh, but, like, to drink uh, before they go into barrels. Okay. Uh, butters red, tastes like. <laughs> <laughs> I won't quote you on that. Thanks. <laughs> uh, and, uh, it's just kind of sweet and flabby, but that's what we want. Right, uh, right, right. It's right. not about what it tastes going in there. It's what it's going to taste like at, at the finish. And you need to have a little, uh, you don't want to be very attenuated or else. No, no, no. Uh, we, yeah, we, we, we do high temperature mash temps and we, Build some uh, big dextrins and proteins, stuff yeah. for the bugs to chew on. And right. to eat. uh and then it's
1: low, low IBU beer. So just to clarify, there was a gap there that we were joking about when uh, it, Josh said the original beer he makes is like, and then he named a commercial brand that is very familiar to many people, which we
0: shall never reveal. But you can take your guesses and send them into our Facebook page. <laughs> and we'll be we'll be curious to know what you think he's he mentioned when he was <laughs> comparing his beer to a bad yeah, a bad commercial beer. Oh, so, By the way, it's not a macro brew, so. No. It's your one
1: hit. It's not it's a one of the uh best-selling uh craft beers. Oh mesh.
0: no, now you're giving too much away. Okay.
1: Uh Yeah, let's uh forget I said that. Yeah. <laughs> The craft police will come after me. Okay, um, so the, the key points there is he's making a, a base beer that's going to have some residual sugars left to eat on. But because he has a young brewery that doesn't have, any, doesn't have 200-year-old fooders like Rodenbach, right. he's actually pitching his own yeast uh, to try to build these flavors that Rodenbach gets naturally in their native right. environment. So why don't we listen to him talk about that?
3: Okay. We remove the yeast from the beer before it goes into the, into the barrels. And then we're inoculating uh, with a culture of uh, a little bit of bread, uh, 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 lactic, and uh, PDO.
1: So I think um, by this point, We've, we've talked about the brewing enough that we probably don't need to do a lot of description there. When you're adding these wild yeast and bacteria, you're trying to get layers of flavor in there. So just like Rudy said, we don't look for a bretonomyces character. We don't look for a pediococcus character. It doesn't mean those aren't present. Right. And you probably want a uh, diverse uh, micro microflora fl- uh, to... Sorry, that was a little a little problem here in the studio uh, you're looking for a diverse microflora to create subtle flavors that will appear uh, through this micro uh, biochemistry that goes right. on.
0: Right. Uh, so yeah, they're, they're very different beers. I should mention that the, the Freem calls this a Flanders style red is definitely a Flanders style beer. It's not at all like Rodenbach really. Um, it's quite a different beer. Um, they're both exceptional beers and I highly recommend them both um, to try them. And they're often, they're, they're, they're awfully interesting to try side by side to see how um, a an American craft brewer tries to recreate uh, a style. I shouldn't. They're not trying to recreate Rodenbach, but re recreate sort of or create a beer in the Flanders red style.
1: Yeah, and and what I, I, I a shout out to Josh for his accomplishment on making it uh, rounded and uh, palatable. So many wild American ales are pretty gnarly, and yeah. um, this one is really. Really drinkable. Oh you, yeah! You mentioned the wine notes. I think if you have a a wine, somebody who likes wine who says they don't like beer, or don't really think they like beer, this mm-hmm. they would just they would they would be shocked that this is a beer.
0: Yeah, and and for his talk about introducing Brett and um, uh, and other um, uh, wild bacteria, it's not it's not it's not super present at all. It's very, um, a very nice beer. Very blended, uh, you know, a, a very subtle set of flavors.
1: Yeah. Uh let's let's we talked about how the beer is made and what it tastes like let's turn a little bit to the uh business of this beer mm-hmm. um after I toured the brewery uh with Rudy in, at Rodenbach he talked about how what the challenges he's up against trying to sell this beer um in Belgium uh beer all Belgians think all their beer is really good mm-hmm. and they don't they don't Distinguish. They just believe that it's all like high quality stuff. So they don't necessarily distinguish between a beer that's made over the course of two years versus a beer that's made um, over the course of two weeks. Right. So it's hard for Rodenbach to make this beer and sell it at a price point that they can even stay in business. And we talked a lot about that afterwards. And he was, yeah, he he actually borrowed my my pen and paper and he was drawing. Graphs and stuff about <laughs> where the market is and and how it's collapsing in certain parts. And he talked about the the dangers confronting uh, this style of beer. Right. And it made me. It, it, I didn't have anything uh, pec- particularly illuminating to say. It made me wonder. Um, you know, you talk all the time about uh, efficiencies of scale and how the way that you, with a with a product like beer, mm-hmm. w- you make it more efficient. Uh, more efficiently, you can sell it at a, and and make more money. There are some beers like this. That are a tradition made a traditionally made product that can't be made at scale, right? Uh, and yet, Rodenbach is still on the same grocery store shelves or the same cafes as uh, Stella Artois or even uh, uh, you know Leff or these other kind of right beers. So, right. I guess um, you know what what do economic models tell us about that? How do these how can these breweries survive?
0: Yeah, I mean it's 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 interesting. There's a couple of things about sort of the artisanal culture that I That I identify sort of craft brew um, inhabiting, uh, or at least a part of the sort of move to to more artisanal products, getting away from these big industrial products. But um, as as you well know, and we've talked about uh, um, on this particular podcast, this is sort of uh, artisanal plus. (laughs) This is quite quite a traditional style of brewing. It doesn't lend itself to to scale. Um, and so the trick is, I suppose, that um, people have to understand and appreciate that um, this is something exceptional mm. and that there is a value uh, uh, to to this type of beer and that it's not something that you're going to get um, through other beers. It's harder, I imagine, in Belgium where there's all kinds of interesting sour beers, there's interesting um, uh, uh, saison, there's fruit beers, there's a, there's such an, an amazing... Brewing culture there that right. to stand out in Belgium is probably quite hard.
1: And and you know, you got monks making beer, and that's a huge cachet. So in in uh, in Belgium, people love monastic beers, and mm-hmm. they think you know they have this kind of romantic idea, which of course everybody ec- plays off of of uh, you know, Catholic monks sitting around making beer, and and um, that they can sort of appreciate must be hard and, and, and stuff, but a commercial brewery like Rodenbach, it's much more difficult to, to make that case. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And what's interesting sort of overall, and, 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 I think about this a lot, you know, in my, in my normal, my day job, I'm an international development economist and I do a lot of, I spend a lot of time in developing countries and low and middle, middle income countries. And I'm always fascinated by this, what I would call sort of this bifurcation or dichotomy of the craft, the, the sort of artisanal or craft culture which is that you know you and you know this because we spent time together in uh in india as undergraduates uh you go to a, a country like india especially india in the late 80s and almost everything is artisanal right because there is no other alternative it's sort of one of the aspects of being a low-income country is everything is sourced locally is people are making their own stuff and uh
1: and um you know and, and you come from the first world you think wow look at all this amazing handmade stuff
0: yeah this is sort of cool and and back to but the you know but the truth is that it's it's sort of part and parcel of being a low income country that you know it's because there aren't these sort of vast uh uh networks of um industrial consumer goods that people can enjoy but then but then you get to to a situation like we're in now in the United States where sort of the the artisanal culture and the craft movement has has really blossomed again and this to me is just part and parcel of being a uh an extremely high income Country. This is this is this is something that comes along with being a very prosperous society, mm-hmm. um, where we have the luxury of being able to sort of go back and say, "Hey, this is what I value," and I and I'll pay you know a super premium price for artisanal. Bacon or in Portland, we buy artisanal donuts. We buy a lot of artisanal things here in my neighborhood. Now there's an artisanal butter shop, uh, <laughs> so that'll be interesting because that's that's something like Rodenbach, right? You have to convince people that that artisanal butter is somehow better than the butter that you can buy in the in the, in the store. So it's it's interesting. So so in economics we call these these types of goods luxury goods, the goods that uh-huh. we start consuming in greater in greater proportion as our incomes go up. And I would say that that's true on the upper sort of the middle to the upper income distribution of craft goods. Um and I think that's one of the reasons that craft beer has really flourished uh lately in the United States. Um is that, you know, quite frankly, we're a very prosperous society and um we can afford to reward or to consume these types of goods that that we value very highly. Um so it's it's uh it's not a complete answer, but this is sort of how I think about it: is that something like Rodenbach is is definitely a luxury good. It's something that if you can convince people that what you're creating is something unique and and different and valuable, um, that people will reward you for that. And I and and I think we've seen that in the drinks industry in general that there's sort of. Um, you know, all of the major brands of whiskey, for example, are coming up with these special reserve bottles. And, mm-hmm. um, so I do think that there is an appetite out there, and I do think Rodenbach can find an audience. It might just be ironically farther away from Belgium. <laughs>
1: right. I think there's a reason why we can buy this at our grocery store. Uh, they are they are, they they recognize that we'll pay a lot more for beer than um, than Belgians will. But it, that that raises a question I have. One of the because they would like this. These products to mm-hmm. be available and appreciated in Belgium, of course. Uh-huh. And one thing that uh, is pretty common in Europe—it's far less common in the United States—is to do uh, to you. You mentioned that thing of trying to characterize your your product as somehow special or worthy of some kind of, uh, uh, you know, like people should pay more for it for some reason. Right. And one one yeah. thing that the Europeans often do is they'll create appellations mm. to protect. Uh, uh, certain uh, artisanal products that may have a long right. tradition or are particular for a region. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Is yeah. that, a, is that a, does that work in the market? Is that, I mean, it's a Yeah, it's
0: good. I'll reference another economic idea, which I've mentioned in beer before. So if you've ever read my blog, uh, I've talked about this a few times. Wait, you have a blog? <laughs> well, <laughs> the blog exists. Uh, it depends on whether, you know, I don't know how you consider a live blog or not. It, it, it's, it's updated infrequently, but... That doesn't mean there's not a treasure trove That's right. of good stuff. You wait there.
1: until you have a jewel to place on the internet.
0: That's right. And you can just go back and, and, and go through all of the amazing gems of wisdom <laughs> that, I've, that I've placed there before. One of those gems of wisdom, by the way, is uh, the idea that beer is an experience good. And what that means is you don't know how much you're going to like it until you actually try it. Uh-huh. And with these types of goods, signaling is a big deal. Uh-huh. So we are, since we don't know, we choose beers on... Lots of re- For lots of reasons, because it's a cool label, because you've heard the name of the brewery is particularly good. Uh, sometimes even price can be a signal. You might take price as a signal of quality. So, wow, this beer is quite expensive. Um, uh, and so this appellation, um, I think, might accomplish uh, a signaling uh, goal in that sense. And yeah. that there's only a few beers that are allowed to call themselves... Uh, Flanders Red, and that Flanders Red is such a distinct and unique product that it, it, it has been um, given this appellation. And then the other thing, of course, is just pure competition. So there's lots of people who can go out and say, look, I'm brewing Flanders Red, which is what the winemakers are all worried about with, right. with Appalachian as well. And you can sort of dilute the idea of Flanders Red, that all of a sudden these crummy beers are out there and everybody can make them. You can buy them for two bucks a, a bottle. Um, and they're all Flanders Red, and, and suddenly it sort of dilutes the whole idea of Flanders Red. So I do think it's um, it can be a very important uh, aspect to sort of maintaining the, um, the particular beer.
1: If you were advising Rodenbach, if they flew you over to say...
0: Uh, Which, know, by the yeah. way, I'll, if they want to do that, I'm available. <laughs>
1: I'll let Rudy know yeah. that you're available. Okay. Uh, if they wanted to get your advice as an economist about... Uh, how to stay in business and how to make a profit, what would you tell a brewery like uh, Rodenbach?
0: Ah, well, I mean, again, go back to the same idea. So if you got to convince consumers that what you're doing is something special and unique, um, you got to get get them to try the beer because it's experience good, um, mm-hmm. and so they have to understand that. And so I do think that, you know, uh, the, the extent to which they can create um, unique uh, a, a unique brand, I shouldn't say brand, not not a not a company brand, but a, a, an appellation for their beer um, is probably a good idea. And um, other than that, it's kind of hard. You just have to you you have to to continue to sort of get your beer out there, get it tried, and get it known as something special and unique, something that beer beer aficionados really need to try and see and seek out.
1: I would say, as, as having visited this brewery, um, it feels to me like it should be considered. If I were a Belgian uh, national trust, it uh, you know they're, uh it's it's a weird thing to say about a company, but um, what they're doing there is so rare and so uh, cool and and uh, so irreproducible. Irre- you can't create. Uh, I don't know how many square feet of cellars they have. Mm-hmm. They have uh, 233 footers in something like 30 cellars down mm-hmm. there. It's just gigantic. The cost of trying to do that what to speak of just the aging for 18 months but trying to stock trying to start a brewery that way is impossible so if this brewery dies it will be you know humans will have lost something valuable
0: yeah that's a very interesting idea and this i think about this in terms of of um, uh, whiskey as well right which is it's an extremely difficult business to get into (laughs) because it takes so long to create a product that you're going to take to market right Um, so there is this really interesting dynamic which is Exit is very easy from this market, but entry is extremely difficult. Yeah, um, that's sort of good for incumbents in a traditional uh, economic model because then you potentially have less competition there. But in this case, uh, you know, they're not. If you're not able to sort of distinguish your your product in its own little market, then you're competing against all these all these other beers. So the romantic in me uh, would um, agrees with you entirely. The 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 rational economist worries that unless they can really convince consumers that what they have is a product that's unique and worth spending extra money for they're going to they're they're, they're going to have a hard time but i think the potential savior might be the 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 rise of craft beer around the world so in other words the export market is probably their they're their saving grace i imagine that um that their their demand will grow around the world for uh, for these exceptional Belgian beers, if um, uh, if the craft uh, sort of renaissance continues, and I see no no reason to suspect it's going to stop.
1: Yeah, one of the things uh, I've been doing a few interviews for for the book, and people keep asking me uh, about which beers I like. It's a it's a question people ask beer writers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's not a good question because they I like all beers, <laughs> but um, I, I find myself putting in plugs for 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 beers that. Most people haven't had that. I think they would really admire, and that are that are in this uh, this realm of you know dangerous. It's like the, there's, uh, they're endangered species in the beer world. Mm-hmm. And uh, it used to be that the uh, lambics were probably the most endangered. I think now it's probably these this category. You you just said it's it's great to be the incumbent. It's only great to be in the incumbent if your category is healthy. That's right. Once your category is not healthy, it's it does not help to be the incumbent. the whole The whole category goes down. You go down with the ship. Yeah, as I tell
0: my students, uh, monopoly power can be great if you're in a market that for something that people people really want. But uh, monopoly power doesn't do you any good if you're producing a product nobody likes.
2: So, right.
1: <laughs> so one thing I will be saying a lot uh, in the next few months is drink Rodenbach, drink Cantillon, drink Bone, drink you know drink these beers that are rare and you know endangered. Um, Absolutely, the, I
0: think it's important both in terms of just sort of beer fandom, but I think it's actually economically important to to recognize these beers as something distinct and worth and worth uh, seeking out.
1: And what's amazing, just f- f- as a consumer, I'll say uh, this bi- this bottle of beer—it's a wine bottle size, seven hundred fifty milliliters—was ten bucks, mm-hmm. and it is a, it is, a, I mean, this will hands down beat. 99% of American wild ale craft beers. It's just really, uh, you know, in its own category.
0: Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty stunning beer. And the last thing I want to say about sort of, sort of tasting notes of this beer is, you know, an 8% beer aged in oak barrels. I have to be honest. And often that sort of stuff turns me off because I'm used to these really heavy American beers and then they will be aged in bourbon barrels and those be really strong alcohol. And so to me, I'll often shy away from these things. Um, Rodenbach is none of these. Rodenbach right. is an amazingly balanced, subtle beer. It's actually quite drinkable. You'd never guess. I would never guess. It's it's an eight percent beer, and it's just so amazingly complex.
1: Yeah, it's more like a wine. You know, if you think of an eight percent wine as a very low alcohol wine, and it, and it's kind of in that category more than a beer. It's uh, it's, it's a.
0: Yeah, this will sound totally cliche, but I'm gonna say it anyway because it's totally true. Is that every sip that I've taken, I've had now maybe ten sips of this beer, uh, gives me yet another taste sensation i'm noticing new things and it's just evolving it's warming up too it's right it's uh it's delightful so
1: so everybody go buy a bottle of grand Cru or two or two drink them um enjoy them and tell your friends yeah
0: and let everybody know that there's something special out there
1: and josh freems is also worth i think it's a relatively inexpensive beer it's it itself i think it's only 10 or 12 bucks which Uh, for for uh You know, a craft beer like this is a a really good deal.
0: Absolutely. It's also a very accomplished beer, and um, I'm enjoying it as much, um, uh, but in a different way.
1: Right. But Josh is not going to go out of business, so let's hope. I, he's not going to go out of business. He makes some amazing. Beers.
0: He's making great beers. I, yeah. I, I I should hope. I should I should hope not.
1: <laughs> well,
0: I think that probably uh, is a good place to to end the podcast. Yep. Uh, so thanks very much for listening. Uh, a few words about how to get in touch, of course. Uh, Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog. Um, he also blogs and uh, will soon be uh, starting a column at all about beer. Uh, and That's true. Yeah. Uh he tweets it at Birvana, And if you want to be in touch with us, the best way to get in touch is through the Beervana Facebook page.
1: Right. Uh yeah. Did I did you plug your own blog? I was pouring Rodenbach and wasn't.
0: Uh yeah. My my blog as as we've talked about, which is just an amazing um cache of of uh knowledge nuggets, is is Um it is not uh, a very active blog these days uh but that 's okay um because but
1: it is true actually when you talk about economic principles, those don 't have an expiration date, so it's worth uh spending a little time on there yeah in my in my if defense
0: in my defense i'm writing an, a a microeconomics textbook and i 'm a chair of the economics department. And I have lots of things going on, so it 's very hard to spend enough time so this
1: podcast is actually one way it, in which to exactly and then you started a podcast, so so you're doing you 're doing yeoman 's work over there. That's right. Uh,
0: okay, so email. If you want to email, it's uh, um, the underscore beeraxe at yahoo.com. That'll get to Jeff. Uh, as I mentioned, the Beervana blog Facebook page is a great way to be in touch. Um, but any way you can get in touch, please do so because we'd love to hear from you. Please send us your questions and comments. So uh, as we uh, leave, I will say uh, Saoji to you, Jeff. I have the Rodenbach.
1: I will say cheers to you. I have the Freem. I'm trying to... Prost. Uh, Is that how you say it in Flemish? In Flemish. Oh, um, here we go. I'm going down on a bad note. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. All right.